Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. You probably have noticed that my usual co-host, Paul Prescott, is not here with me today. Instead, we have Nando Vila. You obviously know him from The Weekend Show. Nando, what's up? You know, big shoes to fill. I'm just happy I got called up for the majors on the on the main show. Uh, you know, The Weekend Show, it's Saturday. It's a little chiller. This is This is the weekday. It's time to work. It's the weekday. Uh, you've got your button-up shirt on, and you're ready to rock and roll. <laughs> yes, I am, as always. As always. Um, so we, of course, have our good friend, the editor of Jacobin, Bhaskar Sankara, coming on a little later to talk about social democracy, of course, what it is, what it is not, how we achieve it. Um, but before he comes on, um, I wanted to just bring up, I guess, what we might say is lack of social democracy, aka the <laughs> complete paucity of the welfare state of social supports in this country. Um, of course, we talk about this all the time on The Jacobin Show and on uh, you, you guys on weekends do as well. Um, but the reason why I this subject was on my mind, especially this week, is uh, the Capitol riots, or rather the fallout from the Capitol riots. So, of course, earlier this week, uh, the Republicans filibustered uh, an attempt to launch an, inde uh, an independent investigation into the Capitol riots. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, the Capitol riots, I think, there have been a lot of opinions about them. Uh, you've talked about them on the weekend show, Nando. Um, I know you've been a critic of kind of using the Capitol riots as a pretext for beefing up the security state. Uh, we can get into that. Um, and, you know, I do want to mention, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but when the Capitol riots happened, which was pretty much six months to the day, almost, uh, January 6th, of course, uh, we were actually doing a Jacobin show that day, and we sort of went live as the news was sort of unfolding. I remember. You do? Yeah. And yeah. and we, we kind of like commented on it in real time. Um, but of course, you know, six months have passed since then. Um, I, I don't know that I have a ton of different opinions on what happened, but I wanted to throw throw it to you briefly Nando before we kind of get into conspiracy theories and what else is in the new in, in the news and the world of conspiracy theory um have your thoughts on the capital riots changed since not just since they sort of took place but given all of the media you know back and forth about them in the time between January and now I guess I mean I don't know that it's changed too much I mean I think my my general take on it is that it was bad. It was, you know, it was a scary thing as it was happening, but you could already just foresee the, the problems with the reaction to it. Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, you have um, liberals basically like with their hair on fire about it, uh, saying it was this kind of um, this, this unprecedented assault on our democracy mm -hmm. and, and, and being very outraged that certain people would, would question the outcome of the you know election, which we won fair square, fair and square. Like I remember the year two thousand. I was old enough to remember that, and where they just Likewise. kind of absorbed, yeah, that they just absorbed that and moved on with their lives. So I don't really take them that seriously on on that front. And then you know Luke Savage had a piece in in the Atlantic um, this week where he he talked about the sort of um, the cognitive dissonance between 
liberals just talking about this kind of unprecedented assault on our democracy, not just the Capitol riots, but um, Republican attempts to overthrow elections or, uh, you know, or overturn elections, um, reduce the franchise. And then they just do nothing about it, like mm-hmm. nothing, no, like no opposition, um, any meaningful opposition, you know, whereas the Republicans are passing. I think the, the Brennan Center for Justice uh, said that they were passing 361 voting voter restriction bills in state legislatures across the country um is there an equivalent response from the from the democrats like no so i don't take them that seriously and that their only responses are beefing up you know capital security you know uh in like these fbi investigations into like who was actually at the riot and you know getting people to snitch on each other as to like if you know someone who was there contact your local fbi office or whatever like all of that is just bad. It's just mm-hmm. bad. And I could, you could just see it happening mm-hmm. um, very clearly. Yeah. I also want to add, you know, since the Capitol riots happened and, you know, there, of course, was not this formal like Senate investigation, but uh, journalists have been covering it. You know, uh, as you said, people have been like informing on each other, turning each other in. We've gotten a lot more information about what exactly happened at, at uh, on that day since then. Um, and, you know, I think that the evidence, I think that there's strong evidence that there was no plan for a fascist coup. Now, were there some, I know, Nando, you're like raising your eyebrows at me. Were there some like extreme right wing nutcases there who were trying to do that? Of course, of course there were like guys showed up with bombs. Um, you know, uh, n- not everybody. I mean, there were I-, I said this on a different show with David Griscom, but like I was actually surprised being from Idaho that like there weren't that many guns there. Um, and that's because D.C. is not an open carry uh, uh, mm. area, which I think is pretty important. I mean, that shows that, you know, that you may have be... saved lives. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so but that said, you know, there were some guns. Uh, so, you know, clearly some people did show up with the intention of doing violence, but I think that in the time since the Capitol riots occurred and now we have more information such as, you know, there was this famous picture of a guy with zip ties, um, and it was like, he's going to like kidnap the Congress people. Uh, it turns out upon further inspection, you know, I mean... Maybe he would have, but what had happened was he was there with his mom. He had, like, found some of those zip ties on the ground that, like, some Capitol Police officer had abandoned and just sort of picked them up and, I guess, was caught in that, like, you know, fateful shot. And, like, you know, he's been identified and he's going to face, like, criminal prosecution. Um, So, again, I, I don't say this to downplay what happened. As you say, obviously it was, uh, you know, extremely scary. Um, it shouldn't have happened, but I think, you know, kind of, um, I think sometimes sort of blowing the fascist whistle or raising the fascist alarm sort of obscures what I think is another dangerous element of the Capitol riot. Uh, And Danny Bessner and Amber Frost have a really great article in Jacobin that came out sort of closer to the event, which talked about the presence of QAnon adherents at at the Capitol that day. Um, You know, we all know now at this point that there were a lot of QAnon type people there. Um, Most famously, of course, the QAnon shaman with his like buffalo hat and like no shirt um and you know just like complete crazy get up um and the reason why i bring up QAnon is you know i so so uh i'll i'll back up for a second there was there was a new york times article that came out earlier this week which talked about how QAnon beliefs are on the rise uh the uh public i think it's what is it called the public uh religion research institute conducted a survey um and they basically found that 15% of the people they surveyed 
believed in QAnon or some, you know, aspects of of the QAnon uh, kind of worldview. Um, so I'll, I'm just looking at the first graph here, uh, but it says the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global sex trafficking operation. And as you can see, uh, almost 23% of Republicans believe that. Uh, 15% of all Americans, according to this survey, believe that. Um, so, you know, as the PRI points out, this is kind of frightening and scary, right? Uh, as I, I think they say in the article that um, 15% is like about the same size as white evangelicals. So uh, they say something like this, you know, QAnon is almost the size of like a major organized religion at this point. Um, and I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I mean, I... I guess I take this survey with maybe like a bit of a grain of salt um, and, and we should talk a little bit about conspiracy theory in general and why the U.S. is such a ripe breeding ground for them. Um, but any thoughts on QAnon <laughs> just to kick it off? Yeah, I, I, I share your slight um, skepticism over like over prescribing the accuracy of of that of those results and that I think these days people are pretty savvy about polling. And I think that's one of the reasons why polling has been very off on, yeah. on the last couple of election cycles and things. And, and especially with these kind of more outlandish uh, polls, I think people can sense what the, the question is kind of getting at. Mm -hmm. And you know what I mean? Like in the sense that like they're asking them, Oh, do you believe satanic pedophiles uh, run the government? And on, on some level, the person like knows what they're, what they're, what, what what's really behind that question mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you know what i mean and they're like oh okay i'll just answer yes because fuck you guys right you know, right you, guys. you know you're just liberal media assholes mm -hmm. and you're gonna you know what i mean mm -hmm. um so i think there's an element of that going on and i i find it very difficult to trust any polling especially of the american right you yeah. know like where i just think that it's become kind of a it's it's become a culture war tool mm -hmm. um and as such i think has lost a lot of its accuracy because people can see what is going on but that that being said, um, it is true that QAnon has way more, like just in my life, you know, anecdotally, it has more, more people believe it than you would want to feel comfortable believing, right, you know, right. um, like it, there is anecdotal evidence to suggest that a lot, a lot of people uh, do believe this stuff. And I think you're right that, you know, that conspiracy theory is a, has always been kind of a particularly American thing. And I, I, I don't, I don't really have a strong uh, theory as to why. I mean, I, I know this is not like anything particularly new, mm -hmm. um, but um, but yeah, I think and it's and it obviously increases dramatically in periods of of you know inequality, social instability, lack of trust. I mean, look at look at the collapse in trust in all institutions. Yeah, I mean, the, the media, the government, trust, the, which is not it's not something that happened with Trump. It's you look at you look at the the surveys starting like in the nineties. Mm -hmm. I think Gallup has been doing a, a yearly kind of things uh, for for decades, and like starting around the, the early nineties, it just started to see a pretty steady decline. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's not like something that was that is you know necessarily driven by social or like created by social media right. or the internet or even or Trump especially. Um, it's something that has been trending with the rest of the with the collapse in, in other institutions mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that on some level, the institutions have themselves to blame. I mean, the institutions have not done a good job. Right, they're, right. They're, they're 
very bad record right. on the institutions. Yeah, I mean, um, even when you look and, at the first, you know, PRI question, like, do you believe the government is controlled by, uh, you know, an elite, uh, the government finance and the media are controlled by an elite of, like, satanic pedophiles? It's like, well, they are controlled by elites. I don't know if the elites are all right. Satanists or all pedophiles, um, but, you know, I, I, I'm sure... A like, lot of them seem to be, though. Exactly, <laughs> right, right. Exactly, some of them seem to be. I mean, you know, I'm sure, like, tons of people have pointed this out before, but... But if you just look at the like Jeffrey Epstein inner circle, I mean, what is that but a you know inner circle of elites who are also pedophiles? Um, so I, you know, that I, I guess that kind of brings me to, um, like you were saying, I don't know that I have like a grand unified theory of why conspiracy theories are so American. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is I think part of the problem is um, American the American political system has been so non-transparent. Um, it's been so, you know, uh, secretive. Um, uh, there are actual assaults on democracy that are not just the Capitol riot, but, you know, just run-of-the-mill voter disenfranchisement. Or it, you can even think about things like the influence of money in politics um, and how that basically, um, by default, you know, excludes a large group of people from political participation. Uh, the political system is rigged as, you know, yeah. Our fave Bernie Sanders has always said. Um, so it's not really yeah. much of a surprise that uh, that that, you know, people kind of uh, intuit that and then come up with these like outlandish explanations uh, for, you know, for lack yeah. of a, a better answer. Three years ago, The Washington Post uh, published something called the Afghanistan Papers, and it was an enormous bombshell that mm -hmm. would have like rocked, uh, you know, any society. Um, because basically what it said, um, a, the journalist got access to internal documents uh, spanning from the beginning of the Afghanistan war through the, the end, basically, in which they just basically proved that the government was lying about literally everything about the war at all times, right. every single year, no matter who was in power, no matter what the hell they were doing, mm -hmm. they were just lying about it all the time. Um, and, you know, that kind of just that a, new, a news item like that, it doesn't even it doesn't even register because I right. think most people assume correctly that the institutions that govern their lives are unaccountable to them they lie to them all the time i mean but you know you don't even want to talk about iraq uh, we're like just based solely on lies in which every structure of power um including the media including the liberal media like not just the you know right-wing insane media all of it just kind of fell into lockstep um to to sell us this war that was all based on lies mm -hmm. um and so how can you expect, I don't think that you can expect people in a society that where that is just incredibly common, um, which also have, you know, declining life expectancy, uh, declining wages and job security and all the things that social democracy uh, brings to people um, and expect them to trust anything. And, and you know, so um, right. I, I, I just... Like when people when when I, I I have like zero patience for elites, you know, when I'm talking to someone like in, you know, some high level media job or whatever. And they're like, can you believe these people like believe all these crazy things? And I'm like, yeah, can you believe all the insane shit you <laughs> right. publish like, on you know, in the New York Times? Right. I don't know, like all <laughs> right. the time. Yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> like, um, yeah. Like, look at yourself like yeah. don't, don't blame these people like blame yourself. Mm -hmm. and And then we can have a serious conversation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that 
you know, actually brings me to the other thing that I wanted to, to address before we get Bhaskar on, which is um, A, the opioid crisis, uh, but B, just like the complete mess that our for-profit healthcare system is. Obviously, every Jacobin viewer like knows this by now, um, but there was a particularly interesting article in the New York Times. I believe it came out earlier this week, and it basically talked about how a lot of people who are unvaccinated right now uh, are unvaccinated because they don't actually believe that the vaccine is free, right? They're afraid that yeah. they're going to get hit with a surprise bill. Um, I want to bring up one specific quote from the article. This is by a medical professional in California who says, uh, you know, uh, about conversations that they have with their patients. The conversations we have are like, yes, I know it's good, meaning the vaccine. Yes, I want it, but I don't have insurance, said Ilan Shapiro, medical director of Altamed, a community health network in Southern California that serves a large Hispanic population. We're trying to make sure everyone knows it's free. Um, and, you know, mm. of course, the vaccine is free. It's supposed to be free. Uh, there's been a push to make sure that people know that. That said, testing was supposed to be free as well. And we know that lots of people got hit with surprise bills. Um, and, you know, even just on the vaccine being free, like when I went to get it, it was free, but they asked for my insurance still. I don't know if you yeah. had that. Yeah, it was like really Same weird. Thing. I don't know. I what was like. I, I thought about like not giving it to them. Really? Yeah. But then I was like worried because I got vaccinated like almost like as soon as I was eligible yeah. kind of thing. And um, I was worried that if I didn't put my insurance, like I would get bumped, you know, to another part. Like I had right. no idea. Yeah. Um, right. Because I was like, this is supposed to be free. Why do they need my insurance? Right. Like, why? Right. So even you, somebody with insurance who, you know, like obviously, you know, got vaccinated without much of a hitch, had that moment where when they were asking for your insurance and because of your experience, obviously, with our like deeply broken medical system, you were like, well, what should I do? I mean, I can, you, you know, it, it, it's not a surprise, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and I bring this up in the context of, you know, conspiracy theories and how they're sort of materially like homegrown um, because uh, I think there's this conception right now that, you know, people who are unvaccinated are like stubborn somehow or at worst are like wackos who like subscribe to some kind of anti-science, anti-vax, you know, conspiracy theory. And to be sure, like, of course, there are tons of those people. Um, there are tons of people who are just stubborn or I live whatever. in L.A. I know, I know <laughs> you, them well. You've seen them. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But that said, it's like we now know that at, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, um, we, out, we now know that at least a third of people who are unvaccinated have expressed some sort of misgiving about, you know, whether or not it's actually free. And again, this goes back to our, you know, broken healthcare system. I mean, what if we could just eliminate that seed of doubt by having a functioning single payer system, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, well, one thing I'll say is that according to health executives themselves, like they're like, it's free for now, you know, like right. we need to do booster shots or whatever, like they expect to make money eventually on the vaccine, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it's not, it's unclear whether, you know, the two shots is enough. Um, mm -hmm. You might need a third shot next year and, or maybe one up every year and they expect to make money then, right. <laughs> you know, right. at least, at least yeah, eventually own, down the line. Yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, I, I, and I do wonder if the flip side is, um, you know, for, if we focus obviously on the negative, that's, that's, that's bad, but like, but there probably are going to be millions of people who are going to get vaccinated for free. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder if we could use that as a base for like, you know, maybe we could just do like to convince people like, or talk to people as an organizational tool would be like, wouldn't it be nice if like all of this shit was free. Like they did it once. Right. Like, why can't they do it again? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Remember um, when you showed up for the vaccine, it like actually worked well and was free. Like, 
Yeah. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. You could have that every day of yeah. your life. <laughs> I just want to say, um, as a personal anecdote, I got vaccinated in New York City at the Javits Center. I don't know if you know it, but it's basically this like yeah, massive... Yeah, where Hillary Clinton broke the glass Oh, God. Yeah, 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 it's true. It's true. The very auditorium. Yeah, yeah it's it's this yes. massive like convention center that looks like an aquarium. Um, and unlike anything else that has happened in New York during the pandemic, the vaccination rollout at the Javits Center actually went like extremely smoothly. Like lines were orderly, like the military was directing things, you know, like everything moved really quickly. And except for that moment where they were like, give me your insurance, which of course, you know, worked out for me. It was like completely seamless. And I was like, I like, holy shit, I guess this is how like, the medical system runs when, you know, things are centralized, things are like directed from above and also nobody has to pay or like, you know, really yeah. fuck with their insurance. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm originally from Spain. I remember, I mean, it's, it's a joy to go to the doctor or even the pharmacy in Spain. You know, they're all state, they're all, they're essentially like state licensed, uh, uh, pharmacies. Like there's no branding. There's no like, you know, they all just have the same kind of generic green, cross um medicine yeah it's like medicine and you you show up and like they have a they have more of an ability to prescribe than 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 they do in the united states the pharmacists themselves which saves a lot of time you just walk Mm -hmm. in there and they're like okay what's wrong with you okay like your eye what's going okay here take this and you know and it's like and then you go to pay and it's like 49 cents or something absurdly low um you know and it's it's a dream it's a dream when it works that way yeah yeah for sure Um, but okay. Speaking of prescriptions, I did also want to briefly touch on the opioid crisis. Um, and the reason for that is because number one on the theme of conspiracy, uh, the opioid crisis in the U S is basically a real life conspiracy theory, right? I mean, when you (laughs) look at what Purdue Pharma did, uh, by which I mean, not just manufacturing and, uh, uh, you know, continuing and exacerbating the opioid, the opioid crisis for profit, but then turning around and trying to patent uh, the uh, drug used to treat opioid addiction. I mean, again, like we were saying before, how, I mean, when you're faced with something that crazy, like, is it a surprise that people turn to other conspiracy theories, right? Um, But I mean, yeah, I mean, the Sackler family is actually like, you know, initiated legal proceedings to, to, to protect themselves from any future um, uh, prosecution or lawsuits as a result from this. It's, you know, like you said, it's a real life conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So on that front, you know, um, I did want to share this news. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but, uh, there's another lawsuit pending against McKinsey, which of course is the evil consulting firm that worked with Purdue Pharma to kind of, uh, lobby and, you know, manufacture and spread opioids to distributors and pharmacies, Um, I think one of the like well-known repulsive things that McKinsey did was coach Purdue on how to respond to messages from parents whose children had died of opioid addiction. They were like, well, what if we talked about how like these pills really help people with pain? And it's just like, so, you know, McKinsey, um, if you guys remember earlier this year, uh, was already the subject of a lawsuit and I think settled for something like 600 million uh, with all 50 states or 600 was 600 million was the total amount that they settled with all 50 states. Uh, but that does not prevent, you know, cities and uh, I guess counties from filing their own suits. So New York City and a couple different counties in New York recently filed yet another suit against McKinsey. Uh, hope that they are able to wring some more money out of them. Um, and 
you know, when I was reading about this, I also came across a news story about how the opioid crisis unsurprisingly had gotten worse during the pandemic. Um, you know, I don't think this comes as much of a shock, um, but I hadn't heard that much about it. Uh, and I was actually talking to my boyfriend about about it. And he was like, no, I didn't hear anything about it. Actually, I thought the opioid crisis was on the wane. Um, but I want to play a quick clip from CBS. Uh, this is a doctor at Harvard University's public health school, uh, and he talks a little bit about it. This is, of course, you know, an incredibly important public health crisis that has come along with COVID. Um, some people are calling them twin pandemics um, that have collided with one another. I want to point out that before 2020, we went into the COVID pandemic with an out-of-control public health crisis of addiction. Um, 2019 actually um, had been the worst record, uh, the worst year on record for opioid overdoses up until that point. And um, there are indications that 2020, even without a pandemic, would have been terrible as well. Um, however, during the pandemic, um, as all of us have experienced, at the stress of the pandemic, extreme isolation, job loss, um, and you really have a perfect storm for addiction to flourish. And add that on top of the fact that mental health problems, um, you know, largely due to these factors, exploded during the pandemic. And you have huge increases in the number of Americans reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression. And all of these are issues that can either lead people to addiction or worsen addiction in those who might be predisposed. So, like I said, you know, uh, really tragic, uh, also not that much of a surprise. Um, and I, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because, you know, again, the seeds of the opioid crisis are, of course, in this, like, com completely, like, evil, like, as we were saying, real-life conspiracy uh, between Purdue Pharma, McKinsey, and other, you know, pharmaceutical companies who kind of, like, engineered the crisis for profit. Um, but also, we just completely do not have any kind of support for people who are uh, dealing yeah. with addiction. Um, again, you know, let's not even get into the kind of broken healthcare system. There's just, there's just nothing there's there. And, you know, as the doctor was saying, like when you have a mental health crisis, whether it is, uh, you know, brought on by the pandemic or something else that those factors are only going to collide and make things worse. Yeah. I mean, when you look at something like the Sackler family um, and their evil, which they are horrific, evil, just, just absolute vampires just the worst people like maybe on the planet um if you did the thing and you went back in time and killed you know how you can kill baby Hitler now well if you did that it wouldn't matter because right. someone else would just do it because when yeah. the, when you have a for-profit health system and there's something like opioids and there's money to be made off of this highly addictive dangerous thing and it's legal, like someone's going to do it. Like mm -hmm. you can kill all the Sacklers tomorrow and then to, there'll be some other evil family and some other evil corporation who will who will do the same thing because that's just fundamentally what happens when mm -hmm. you use profit um, in something like health. You know, that's it just a, it's something that is completely at odds with the goals of public health, with the goals of helping people, you know, it's just incompatible with profit. So mm -hmm. as long as you have that, you're going to have the Sacklers of the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's just, and, and, and the, the, the opioid epidemic is just, is one of the most, I mean, it, it's one of the most depressing things in, in our, in our country right now. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's the fact that we're the only developed country that has a declining life expectancy and it's driven largely by these deaths of despair, both alcoholism, suicide yep. and opioids, uh, or a combination of all three. Um, it, it's, it just shows you like, how 
how sick our society is mm-hmm. and how how much people are struggling that it's that it's you know th- that and and that it's the 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 impulse to sort of complicate that narrative you know that it's not just the fact that we don't have things like a public health system that yeah. we don't have job security that we don't have rising wages that we don't have you know all the, these things that give people stability in their lives um and and it just it's mind-boggling to me that people try to obfuscate that narrative because mm-hmm. it's just so obvious like okay the pandemic happens people are stressed uh, people lose their jobs there's all this kind of of course uh, opioid addictions are going to go up right yeah, I mean, to to follow from that, I was thinking earlier about how, like, you know, a few years ago when there kind of started to be this sort of more, like, mainstream, you know, uh, attention to the opioid crisis, a very common, like, liberal narrative, I think, was like, oh, <laughs> you're already it's making the people. liberal face. Yeah. It's white people. Exactly, it's white That's people, That's why you care right? about it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, there was comparisons of, you know, the opioid crisis to, you know, the crack crisis in the 80s where, you know, People would point out, well, like when we had the crack problem, like, you know, because it was black people, uh, the, you know, punitive, like, fist of the state came down and, like, people were thrown into jail and, like, nobody called it a public health crisis. Um, all, all true, you know, I mean, the, the broad yeah. contours of that kind of narrative, I suppose, are true. Um, but as we can see from, <laughs> from, you know, the statistics that we just shared, what we've just been talking about, I don't actually think that most of the victims of the opioid crisis or their families have been treated well. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. No, no, no. No, I mean, and and I, I don't know. You, I'm sure there's plenty of white people who are in jail for running meth labs or whatever. Uh, you know, to to cite a white a white. Drug. Yeah, I'm from Idaho. Um, there are <laughs> plenty of meth labs, right? And plenty of people in jail for them. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I hate that liberal impulse to yeah. uh, identify like a racial injury, uh, and then um, the prescription is we got to bring everyone down. <laughs> you right. know, like everyone's got to suffer the same, uh, the same, the same bad thing. You know, right. like that we just have to distribute racial pain equally rather than just right. kind of like right. mitigate the harm and and get everyone up to you exactly know, uh, the level of everyone else. I mean, it's just it's so obvious, but like that's not that's not the impulse Pe- because people. Because of a lack of uh, of class consciousness and, and, and a class analysis, like people f- look at like a, a poor white person and think like, "Ew, they're they're bad, they're disgusting." You know, right. they, they don't see that their their fates are are tied with them. Right. I mean, that was uh, um, that was an interesting thing when I was researching the piece in which I cited your article, Jen. That uh, that all these anti racist training, what are the effects? That I mean, it doesn't mitigate um, uh, racial biases. One thing it does increase though is class antagonism right. you know the people who take people, them are like it makes middle class people less sympathetic to poor white people which like yes <laughs> congrats i don't like yeah <laughs> yeah um so. well uh i think on that note maybe we should bring out the man of the hour Bhaskar sankara uh everybody <laughs> you know him as hey. the editor and publisher of jacobin Bhaskar, uh you're the editor of Jacobin, and you're now on the Jacobin show, and I can't figure out yeah. if that makes you our most important guest so far or the least remarkable. But in any case, we're happy to have well, you. He's the one who pays the bills, baby. He pays the bills. Yeah, he's the most yeah. important one. No, I'm I'm the I'm the fill in. Actually, I demanded a certain amount of uh, of time to talk about you know various musings, my thoughts on evolution, <laughs> um, you know whatever whatever else. Actually, uh, right as we were coming on, like when I was in the way room or wherever backstage 
in uh, StreamYard, I was looking at this plan that Muammar Gaddafi came up with for the partition yeah. of Switzerland. Friend of the show, Muammar Gaddafi. Certainly judge him by the ones who came after. But um, he came up with a plan to just partition Switzerland. And this is like 2008. Like This is fairly recently. Uh, he was going to divide it up between France, Italy, and Germany on linguistic lines. And I wasn't sure if he was like making a point about uh, European colonialism in Africa or something, or whether like they had just frozen his Swiss bank account and he was pissed. Or, so I don't know the context. You, you think but, you think um, you think Gaddafi was doing uh, like con- uh, an elaborate conceptual provocation? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it was yeah. like an art piece from yeah. from Gaddafi. But well, you yeah. know, I was going to say uh, so. So we have we're having you on to talk about social democracy. I think that's your second favorite topic. The first, of course, being basketball. Uh, yeah, and that is my. I was very vague about what my important hard out was. <laughs> I was kind of insinuating to Kale there was a family matter, uh, <laughs> but in fact, I just need to get home um, from the Jackman office where I am now uh, to watch the Knicks game. So you know, uh, uh, hopefully you're at. hopefully you're not alone in you know among the Jacobin viewers. Uh, there could be some other basketball fans out there. So. We do. We did promise Boscar and other Knicks fans that there would be a hard stop before the game. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So Autumn Leaves is a Nets fan. I hope that's a joke. That was one of my favorite YouTube commentators. You know, it's a low bar on YouTube, but we tend to have a few good ones. But wow, that's tough. That's tough. Boscar already sparring with the commentators. Welcome back Maybe, to... Yeah. Autumn. Autumn, are you from New Jersey? Because that would make it justifiable if you have some sort of New Jersey connection. Um, I feel like they're allowed to be Nets fans. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, social democracy. Yes. Um, so so I, I think actually, Bhaskar, I want to start just by kind of uh, getting like a working definition down. Um, and the reason why I want to do that is because I think, you know, in the U.S. at least, the sort of double campaigns of Bernie Sanders open the door to more widespread interest in a battery of social programs that I think we commonly associate with social democracy, right? So nationalized healthcare, uh, something we talked about on the show earlier, um, you know, free public higher education, uh, greater financial support for parents, redistribution of wealth, so on and so forth. Um, and of course, when Bernie was running, he, he famously calls himself a democratic socialist, and a lot of people referred to his policies that way. Um, I think that he referred to Denmark and other Nordic states as mm-hmm. social or as a democratic socialist a couple of different times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there is a difference between social democracy and democratic socialism. And I think for the purposes of the Bernie campaign and for like 99% of American politics, like it's not really that important to like split that hair. Um, but just set us up with a working definition uh, just so we can, you know, kind of kick off. What is social democracy and what is it not? So there's many different definitions of social democracy um, that breaks down the different types of social democracy. What I would say for the purposes of your question is that if you want a simple way to differentiate between, let's say, communism, our vision of democratic socialism or socialism and social democracy, I would say that social democracy was the attempt to give us doses of socialism within capitalism. Or that's what ultimately it ended up doing, even though it initially aspired to do something else. Um, Communism, in a sense, or the socialist bloc, the actual existing socialism, was an attempt to build a socialist bloc outside of capitalism, and then maybe outcompete it or or find some way to supersede it from that position of being being outside 
capitalism. Again, that wasn't initially the the uh, what communists were trying to do. They were trying to ferment revolution everywhere, but that's in essence what the system ended up being. And then uh, democratic socialism, or our vision of this, of socialism, is a socialism after capitalism. Um, uh, then I would say that the mass movements that came out of the Second International diverged into two different camps, these communist camps and these social democratic uh, camps. I don't see the democratic socialist road being different than the social democratic road. I just see it as one that goes further. So in other words, if a social democracy is able to give workers tremendous power over a capitalist political economy through mass trade unions, through decommodify, taking certain rights like healthcare um, out of the market, uh, through the power of these really big unions and centralized wage bargaining and, and, and all sorts of other things, then what democratic socialism does is that it goes a step further and it questions the right of managers to manage. It asks, why do we not just have better wages and conditions and this welfare state under capitalism? Why can't we ask questions of ownership and questions of industrial democracy as well. So that's a simple definition. But when I think of social democracy, I'm not thinking about just any old welfare state. I'm in particular thinking about the experience of systems built by social democratic parties. So I'm thinking about Sweden and I'm thinking about other Northern European states. Can you talk about how social democracy came to be? Because there was a time where social democracy was the thing, it was like across the Western democracies, it was like hegemonic. And, you know, that seems like that seems like in our current moment of crisis, it just doesn't seem like it's on the the horizon. So maybe if we understood how it came to be out of previous crises, um, we could help maybe build it now. Well, in the common narrative, which you hear among both liberals Ooh. and conservatives and some, and some radicals too. Um, I'm ready for a hot take. Too. I can't wait um, for the uncommon narrative. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's get it. Let's well, the common it. narrative is often like, oh, you know, it was like a rich white country that exploited the global south. And, and they had uh, social solidarity because they were white. And they exploded the global south. Mm. You know, that great Finnish navy was just conquering all of these countries in the global south or whatever. Yes. Um, but in reality, um, these were incredibly poor and unequal countries, violently um, unequal. Um, so Sweden, by many measures, was the most unequal country in Europe next to Russia and with a very violent tradition of class struggle. So it did have certain unique characteristics, one of which was that it was a late industrializer. So you have this working class emerge in Sweden, and it emerges alongside really big industrial unions. So there weren't tiny sectoral craft unions that we had. Um, they didn't slowly go from artisans to workers. Very rapidly, this ad relatively advanced working class um, comes along. And then also because of some unique features, like they had very modern agriculture. So they didn't have a traditional peasantry. They had a relatively progressive at least in a Marxist sense, um, class of, of farmers instead. Um, so you do have this unique background and conditions, but it's the organization of the workers' movement, both the political wing of Swedish workers organized into the uh, Socialist Workers' Party, the SAP. Um, in English, we often call it just this, the, the Swedish Social Democratic Party. Uh, and then you have them organize 
um, economically on the shop floor, these same workers, into uh, the LO, this big centralized trade federation. It's composed of uh, the many different um, unions at the enterprise uh, level. And the first battle is the battle for political democracy. So it's not just a parliamentary battle of trying to get people elected. It's, in fact, a battle to democratize the political system itself. And this is extremely, extremely violent. Um, you know, there's lots of people dead. There's class conflict. There's all sorts of a, a fear of um, the red flag flying over Stockholm. And um, eventually, um, democracy is won. And then after that, the battle becomes, okay, how do we make good on our promise of social and economic democracy? And starting in the 1930s, sometimes governing alone and sometimes in coalition with either the agrarian party, this centrist party, mostly with a rural base uh, in this progressive uh, farmer class that I mentioned, and also with the communist party at times, Swedish social democrats rule their country for 50 to 60 uh, years, nearly without stop. So from the early 1930s until 1976, they're in power basically continuously, and then they're back in power in the 1980s. So they have a very, very long time to cement a new sort of political regime. And at first, there's a lot of thought that, what does it mean to be a social democrat? What's your alternative to capitalism? And for a lot of the parties of the Second International, it was just nationalization. We didn't really know how, but we just knew, okay, we would use the power of the state. We would take over factories. Workers would run them to various degrees of worker control. And we'll figure out a way uh, through parliamentary means to take power and then to administer an economy. And in practice, we found that even though nationalization can work when it comes to the big commanding heights of the economy, you nationalize your rail, you can nationalize your health service, you do all sorts of things um, like that, key uh, natural resources, mining, whatever. Um, it didn't really make sense and didn't really work for, for other, other spheres. So very early on, the Swedes moved from that model, but they still don't want to just let capitalists do whatever they want. They want to shape the pattern of investment and the pattern of Swedish development in a in a more egalitarian way. So they end up creating a system that uses the power of this trade union that has, you know, basically 80, 90 plus percent of the working class um, under its banner uh, to do what's called, it's centralized wage bargaining. It's slightly different than sectoral wage bargaining, but the uh, basics of it was we would push for equal pay for equal work across uh, sectors. And we would try to reward the most efficient uh, producing uh, manufacturers and weed out the least efficient one and then make the most efficient ones pay us and and shape their investment um, to this higher wage uh, model that we want for our country. And then, of course, we would tax the hell out of uh, those those capitalists after the fact beyond making them pay high wages uh, because of the bargaining power of workers. The state would tax the hell out of them. And we would create this big public sector with more and more social uh, guarantees. So it's a very long-winded um, answer, but the bottom line is that it comes to politics and organizing and has very little to do with culture. Uh, but certainly there were a few fortuitous things about Swedish uh, development that made it easier for them to pursue that path. Like in the U.S., you know, we had, for white males at least, we had uh, democracy. So we had party allegiance before we had a modern working class. So American workers loved Eugene Debs. They loved him like they, or the Catholics ones at least, you know, loved the Pope, right? He was like a figure of moral authority. He wasn't, they weren't a hey, hey, party, hey, you know? Hey. Uh, so I won't bring up 
hey, I'm with this Pope. I'm fine with this Pope. You give me a good center left Pope and I, and I, and I, I can ignore many of the horrible things your institution has done, Ananda, but, but you give me another <laughs> Nazi one and I might, I, I, I might, I might, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the record, I am, I'm not really Catholic. I don't give a shit. So just for the record. Wow. You were hired to be the token Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Catholic Catholic uh, representation, you know, cause you're getting uh, angry letters from the Vatican. And, uh, yeah. We thought you were a Latino too. It's like, you know, <laughs> I know, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. Um, but, but, okay, so, Oscar, <laughs> to turn to the U.S. context, um, I think, you know, we and, and we've talked about this with different guests on The Jacobin Show before, uh, but I think one of the kind of uh, overarching narratives that you alluded to about why social democracy never really cohered in the U.S. is, A, that the U.S. is just too racist, um, and, B, you know, I wonder if you can comment on this idea of the New Deal being kind of like the American version of social democracy. I mean, does it make sense to think about it like that? Uh, I, you know, what you're what you're saying about kind of these political formations um, and political parties mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the U.S., of course, did have a pretty robust uh, workers' movement leading up to the New Deal. Um, so, how does that all fit in? Yeah, what I would say is that the U.S. definitely had a history of quite violent class struggle. Um, you know, there's an entire book that I advise people check out called Dynamite. That's in part about how uh, the major tool of U.S. class struggle uh, for a lot of American workers, especially in the Western states, was in fact uh, that they were meant to clear, you know, giant mountains and passes for development and for railroads and whatever else. So the bosses gave us dynamite. And when workers were pissed off, they would toss that dynamite into the boss's uh, living quarters. I mean, that was part of class struggle in the in the U.S. It was very um, it was very rough and it was very difficult to organize, obviously, across um, across a continent. Um, I would say that race and ethnic division does matter. Right. It, it, It did make it that along with geographical disparities did make it difficult to organize the working class uh, compared to in places where the working class was highly centralized in a few cities and a few places with greater levels of um, of commonalities, even at the level of like language uh, at, at a whole host of things. So you could say that the Socialist Party in the U.S. was the mass party of Jewish garment workers in the Lower East Side um, and probably also some um, workers in the mining industry in Nevada and some workers in, in pockets of, of Oklahoma. But we had an entire continent with with workers in different fields and, and again, speaking different languages, with different backgrounds, with different um, uh, experiences. And that obviously played uh, a role. But the best comparison, and this is made by Robin Archer in a book called Why There's No Labor Party in the U.S., is comparing the U.S. to Australia. So you have another country that's very divided along ethnic lines. You have another country with this huge geography that's like, um, quote unquote, underpopulated um, in, the, in the sense you have workers just dis, um, dispersed over this, this huge you know, settler um, colony. And you have um, a lot of the same tensions, yet uh, Australian workers were able to create a labor party. Um, I think that the U.S. being an early industrializer that also had um, already had existing party loyalties 
uh, really work to our negative advantage. So we couldn't do like the Swedish workers did and assemble this young, new working class that's already very concentrated to go fight for political democracy. And in a way, because American workers weren't excluded, at least white white workers weren't excluded from the major uh, parties. Um, We didn't have the same uh, level of um, uh, the same need to form particularly working class institutions in the civic arena, even though we were forming them in the economic arena as far as trade unions. Um, But, you know, I think there were certain times in U.S. history in the 1890s, maybe, for example, when we could have formed a mass-based labor party, where the populist party maybe could have been uh, the political spark uh, behind such a formation or, or an evolution. But instead, what we ended up with was a series of small, largely politically-based organizations, uh, like the Socialist Party and later the Communist Party, that at best um, acted as pressure groups um, onto the dominant um, parties, in particular the Democratic uh, party. So I think it is true that the New Deal that emerged and the New Deal coalition afterwards, especially by the late uh, 40s or mid 40s, became something like a social democratic party within a party. Like labor was incorporated within that tent. Uh, we got mass unionization. We got a certain level of representation for the U.S. working class. We just happened to get it within a capitalist party and without the levers of control that the UK Labour Party had or the Australian Labour Party had, much less these much more radical and Marxist uh, mass parties like the Swedish uh, Workers uh, Party. Speaking of the New Deal, what do you make of the narrative that has become uh, pretty dominant amongst liberals, but even some people on the left, that the New Deal was actually problematic, that it was racist? Um, Well, I think it is kind of... What's funny about that line of thinking is that people don't stop to think, well, for people obsessed with like lived experiences and whatever else, like the actual experiences of black workers in the 1930s was they had for a generation supported the Republican Party as a party of Lincoln, the party of emancipation. And then they were massively realigned by the administration of FDR and by the New Deal. So if the New Deal was uh, a net negative to, um, to I'm being upstaged, uh, but, <laughs> uh, if the New Deal was a net negative for black workers, then there wouldn't have been this mass realignment, right? There wouldn't have been this, this transformation. Um, so um, I think also there's some exclusions when people talk about the New Deal that weren't necessarily exclusions on the basis of of, of race. Um, for example, the Social Security exclusion, which is al- al- almost always cited as a particularly race-based exclusion, in fact, impacted more white workers and impacted uh, black workers. Uh, it did disproportionately impact black workers. But again, the negative impact was to people at the lower rung of the labor market. And the sectors that pushed for it the textile industries and, and people who employed domestic laborers and 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 whatnot, um, these were sectors that were primarily concerned about an uptick in wages and wage costs in very labor-intensive sectors. So I think it's really important to just study the history and understand why why the New Deal was so bad where it was bad, while still understanding that it was a net positive for American workers. And then obviously there are are things in the New Deal. Um, um, suite of policies, particularly around uh, housing and redlining and, and and whatnot, and actions by local and state 
state governments that uh, are explicitly racialized and are and were uh, were negative. Uh, but on the whole, um, it's important to understand it in context. And again, I think we also need to think about what we're talking to the public about, how we're we're presenting our politics to the public. So if we keep saying to the public. We want a Green New Deal. A Green New Deal is great. But then we also say, by the way, the New Deal is bad and racist. Well, why do we call <laughs> our new thing the Green New Deal then? You know, it just it just it seems very confusing. Uh, I the think green, yeah. uh, non-racist New Deal. Yeah, exactly. It just it just really I think it's bad politics. So I do yeah. think the New Deal checked its privilege and now it's <laughs> got green. It did some work. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I want to quickly shout out to Ray Reed's book, Toward Freedom. Um, if anybody watching missed our episode with Toure Reed, you can watch that. But also his book is so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, go check that out if you're interested in kind of piecing through some of the specifics that Bhaskar just mentioned on the New Deal. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And also there's a Catalyst essay that he wrote as well that's, that's um, on, on that topic broadly that is uh, not behind a paywall, I think. So you should, you should check it out. I'm you would sure. know. Yeah, I'm not. We, 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 in general, with Jack have been no paywall with Catalyst. It's, you know, it's a boutique product, you know, it's for, <laughs> it's for the aspiring, yeah, scholars. It's disgusting out there. capitalists. Um, academic yeah. publishing, it's an ugly game. It's an ugly game. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think it is just strange. Like, people like FDR in general, to the extent he, there is a historic memory of the New Deal. They like the New Deal and they, they like the FDR because they think he was egalitarian and because he demanded rights for working people. Obviously yeah. the historical record is, I think that's broadly right, but it's it's complicated. I think it's especially complicated for anti-capitalists who might've rather um, something else happen. Like I, I would rather miss one term of, of FDR, but maybe at least try and fail to construct a, a labor party. Like I wish the, the Ruther brothers did that in the forties or, or whatever, whatever else. So it is a bit complicated, but it's like when you're presenting something to the public, when Bernie Sanders makes a speech, um, I would say a major international, very famous publication commissioned me, go down to DC, write something on Bernie Sanders um, uh, speech. Um, and then I wrote something on his big socialism speech in George Washington University, and he's standing in front of like 29 flags, you know, he's trying to drive on, <laughs> but he's giving his vision of socialism. And he does cite Debs, and he does use a lot of like workerist language about exploitation and stuff like that, which is which is great. But he also, um, you know, invokes primarily um, uh, FDR and the Four Freedoms, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the unfinished kind of Second Bill of Rights to guarantee us. Uh, positive economic rights, in addition to the negative rights guaranteed uh, in the the original uh, founding Bill of Rights. Um, and essentially, my editors of this publication were looking for something that said, no, Bernie isn't a real socialist. He's mm-hmm. just a New Deal Democrat. You know, here's a real socialist mm-hmm. take on that, which I thought was really funny that like these liberal editors were ostensibly like wanted a critique uh, a, a radical critique of, of Bernieism and FDR um, isms, when in fact, when you're living in the U.S. of 2019 and 2020, like that sounds pretty good as a starting point for for more radical, you know, transformations down the road. Yeah. So I, you know, since we're on the subject of FDR, um, maybe let's skip forward to our new FDR, Biden. No, I'm just kidding. 
Um, but I mean, I do want to talk about Biden, right? Because, uh, you know, he has made some gestures toward sort of reversing uh, the tide of austerity. He, you know, post-COVID has sort of loosened some of the purse strings. Um, he has, uh, you know, inaugurated kind of unprecedented for many decades social spending. Um, I believe he just announced a $6 trillion budget, uh, which of course includes uh, funding for all kinds of things like, you know, um, uh, parental leave, uh, child care. Um, again, programs that sound or look very much like some of the programs that even our friend Bernie uh, was advocating when he was on the stump. So I guess I guess the question is, what do you make of Biden in this moment? Um, is there, I mean, I know that we're all skeptical of Biden, but is there some kind of promise or some kind of uh, shift that's positive in what you see coming from Biden these days? Well, I mean, I, I think it's certainly better than than Trump, right? Um, and I, I think that right. I mean that doesn't it doesn't completely go without saying. I think on the on on the left, I, I think there is a host mm. of of. I think that what Biden's offering us is basically uh, a new type of fiscal liberalism. Like he is responding to a certain moment of of crises, um, a moment when. The economy is in a slump in part because of COVID and the lockdowns. And now it's time for a little bit of money to get things going again. And then while we're at it, while we're spending money, let's try to fix these other longstanding social um, issues. And I, I definitely think that's progress. And it's a push against a certain austerian logic that I think held within even the Democratic Party um, for for uh, a period in the 80s and 90s. You know, Biden himself was leading the charge, a bipartisan charge, uh, with, with him and basically a bunch of Republican senators pushing for uh, hard entitlement reforms in the 1980s. He even used that rhetoric as recently as during the Obama administration when he was uh, vice, vice president. Now it seems like we're past that type of um, austerity, or at least that's not on the table today. Um, but I think what Biden's offering is more money, not necessarily anything structural. So if you look at his main structural priorities, this, the things he said he would get done uh, to improve the economy in the long run in some sort of very serious way for working people, uh, the PRO Act, which hasn't passed, and a $15 minimum wage. So in a country without um, uh, centralized uh, bargaining, a $15 minimum wage is kind of the way we do our centralized bargaining. Um, actually, in the Nordic countries, the unions and progressives are actually against a minimum wage because it kind of undermines the, the bargaining power of unions and the normally much higher sectoral wage. But in the U.S., it's a way for us to say, OK, this is the minimum workers should get paid. Uh, weak producers who can't afford to pay this this minimum should go out of business. Uh, efficient producers who can uh, will stay in business. And in general, you know, maybe you should invest in uh, higher um, uh, value added things for U.S. workers to do if you can't just sweat us at $8 or $9 uh, an hour in the most inefficient ways ways possible. So American workers are more productive than, than most workers around the world, but that's not necessarily because we are using the best technology or utilizing our skills the best just because like we work uh, really, really long, long hours. So there's all sorts of structural things you could do with that. And then obviously the, the PRO Act would um, kind of a last gasp for labor to figure out how to increase its density and exert more of a role 
in the economy, advocating for the interests of working working people. Those things have not passed. What has passed is an injection of cash. And it seems like that injection of cash is just a one-time thing that happened because the Democrats won a couple of seats and they were able to do it through budget reconciliation. And given the patterns of um, elections, normally the incumbent party loses in midterm elections. So what happens if the Democratic majority becomes even more narrow or is completely lost? Uh, potentially. Like, can you imagine this happening um, again? Um, and what would have, um, you know, been left from it? You know, the Trump's CARES Act uh, under Trump was also a very sweeping piece of legislation when it comes to the the sectors of the economy that it that it, it, it touched. So I, I think these things are definitely welcomed. I think it's going to improve the lives of millions of people. Um, it's cash in people's pockets that that is uh, objectively having an impact. You know, there there is less mm-hmm. despair. There is going to be less deaths of despair. I think when when the, as long as the um, until the pump um, goes dry. Um, I think the Biden administration has done a very good job pushing against um, uh, claims that that uh, these policies are excessively inflationary. There's a host of things that I think are being done well, but to me, it's not a structural shift. Uh, at all, it's just uh, budgetary uh, liberalism. So then how do we get out of this kind of situation that we're in? Because it feels like since 2008, and probably even since before, where there's just no, there's no real, there's no real political change to speak of that's really meaningful. It just kind of everything seems kind of stuck. And then um, since 2008, we've been living in this, this kind of very strange prolonged economic crisis. I mean, um, we have this weird situation now um, where there's like all these bubbles all over the place, it seems like. And, and you know, if they, when they eventually pop, they're probably going to be, uh, you know, the government's probably going to step in and, and bail everyone out. But like, it's just gonna, it just can see, seems like we're in a kind of both stuck, but also in a perpetual state of crisis. Um, and it feels like no one's heart is really in it, like that no one really believes the the system anymore. Um, so like, what, what is the, what is the way out? Well, I would say that I think there is a sense of, of, of crisis. Um, there's a sense of crisis in part because uh, for working class people, uh, life really hasn't been getting much better in a relative sense. Um, but at the level of the economy as a whole, I actually think the U S is a growing dynamic economy that's incredibly productive and still profitable and still has a lot of room left to go. And I don't mean that to be a cheerleader for the U.S. because what I'm actually saying is that... Spoken um, like a true small business owner. Yeah, yeah right. right. <laughs> uh, all we need is a little bit of help, you know, get the government <laughs> off my back. Um, but you should see our water bill here at the Jackman office. Um, uh, actually, the favored candidate of some parts of the left um, had a little scandal where she bribed a New York City water official um, about a decade ago. That's right. Uh, and hey, I can understand. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I can understand. Um, but no, I think that that the thing is the economy is working, but the economy working doesn't benefit the majority of people in that economy necessarily. Right. At some level, it does, because if your firm, if it wasn't doing well and your firms were out of business or weren't profit enough to stay in business and there'd be more unemployment and that would be a social disaster for everyone. But um, workers need um, uh the ability to bargain for for higher wages. 
And right now, temporarily, we're finding a way to do it just because of unemployment benefits, because of money from the government and stimulus, allowing more people, and in general, a fairly low unemployment rates or very low unemployment rates, allowing people to um, say F off to bad bosses and try to find new work. But we need this in a more institutional way. We need this at a structural level. We need stronger uh, trade unions in this in this uh, in this country. Um, but besides for that, I don't really have a doom and gloom perspective on the on the uh, U.S. And yes, there are lots of different uh, bubbles. I think the housing bubble seems like it's becoming one of them. Uh, there's obviously the rampant speculation in in crypto and 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 things like that. Um, I think that in general, though. When we think about uh, capitalism, instead of looking for crises, um, like I think Marxists traditionally do, I tend to think about how stable the system is and the mechanism of that system stability. Um, so crises are more the exception than the rule. And also mass collective action and workers' movements and workers being successful, trying to push against the imperatives of capital Um those are the exceptions rather than the rules because everything is stacked in favor of capitalists. You know, capitalists, of course, need our labor, uh, working class people's labor collectively. But as individuals, we need our grocery money more than any capitalist needs our, our labor. And it's that asymmetrical dependency that I think is really the key feature of our, our life. And that's why even as the economy grows, even as the world and the country becomes more prosperous, uh, things feel so awful because of that, that precarity underlying the lives of each and every working people. And even if you think you're middle class and you think things are going well, you know, you're just one or two missed paychecks away from, you know, utter despair and destitution. And in most places in the country, you know, you could be served an eviction notice like that, you know, uh, six, seven days after you're late on your, your rent, you know, you just don't have these rights and you don't have the safety net. And again, for leftists, I think who, Look at FDR or look at the safety net and see see it as a mixed blessing, let's say, because um, yet yeah, stabilizing the system uh, that we want to destroy. I mean, it becomes very difficult to be to have an agent that will destroy the system if that agent is so worried about survival on the the day to day. You know, workers who are who are facing unemployment do not revolt and they don't have the capacity to revolt. It's not because they don't like their situation. But I guess that brings up another question, which is, is social democracy stable? I think that social democracy is inherently unstable in the sense that um, what social democracy does is it gives workers more and more power to make wage demands and eventually demands over working uh, conditions. Um, But it does so in an economy that's still fundamentally dependent on uh, private capitalist investment. So at some point, if you're a Swedish capitalist, you could say, all right, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, I'm liking things in Sweden or I'm okay with things in Sweden. I have to deal with these powerful unions, but in general, I have more industrial peace. So there's less strikes than the UK and France. uh, So I might be making less money year over year than I would in the good years in those other countries. uh, But at least it's steady and it's stable and it's better than, than nothing. Um, but what happens when the workers start making demands that go beyond that changes your ability 
to manage, your ability to restructure production, what happens when you're hit by global crises and you're trying to figure out your profitability is declining, yet at the same time, the wage demands are the same or if even going, going higher. Uh, does it make sense for you to double down and invest uh, whatever profits you have into expanding production? Or does it make sense to just hold on to your money until uh, climate changes or maybe invest overseas or somewhere else? So I think there is this inherent um, instability. And I think there's always the risk of going too far for capitalism, but not far enough uh, for socialism. It's inherent in social social democracy. I think we're very far in the United States from reaching the structural limits of social democracy. And also, I think that the social rights that were won, um, capitals have found it very difficult to decay them. Uh, in places where they were one. So even though we might have seen less new welfare rights being constructed in European social democracies or in welfare states across uh, the world and Japan and elsewhere, uh, after the 1970s and, and early early 80s, what rights were won, capitals have found it very hard to erode. And in part because of the aging population um, of a lot of these uh, advanced capitalist countries, um, they're in fact spending more um, a percentage of their, their GDP on social welfare than at previous points in, in history. Of course, I don't mean to say the social democracy is stronger now, uh, like Lane Kenworthy and some others might, uh, than it was in the 1970s and, and early 80s. Um, because of that fact, I think it's it's far, far weaker and the bargaining power of workers is far weaker. I'm just saying that that... It's not fully like um, like Sisyphus, um, and I, that's how uh, Rosa Luxemburg described reforms under under um, under capitalism. Uh, the boulder goes down, but it doesn't go down all all the way. Um, the real question is, how do we then renew the fight for more expansive um, demands? And I don't think we have to go through the whole process of slowly at the same speed rolling the boulder up the hill. I think there's going to be certain moments of of revolutionary feelings, of changes in consciousness, when people can make make huge advances in a short period of, of time. Uh, but I do think that if you do not have the class power to give people Medicare for all and a $15 minimum wage, and you can't figure out how to organize workers behind those popular demands, then we won't have the class power to think about ownership of the means of production and those sorts of, of questions. So they definitely go hand in hand. And I'm definitely all for putting forward those questions of ownership and democracy sooner. Um, but uh, to me, um, the roads aren't the same. I once used this analogy, actually it didn't go well, but I'll try it again. Um, <laughs> where it's like, it's like you're on a football field and, and, you know, um, and social democracy got the ball to the 30 yard line and was inching closer to the red zone, but decided to kick a field goal on like a, a fourth and one. Um, but it's socialism is a touchdown, but it's the same field. It's the same field, you know, uh, this, hey, this is the glory. Well, I guess of, this is live television. Continuing guys. that analogy, yeah. <laughs> when continuing that analogy, was there ever a moment when it looked like social democracy could, uh, you know, throw a thirty-yard pass in, into the corner of the end zone and uh, and get the full six points? Um, and if not, why did they kick the field goal? Um, well, I think it was. Um, you could look at these the radicalization of social democracy in the period between nineteen sixty eight and the mid-1970s. And you'll see the social democratic parties far from being bought off by the welfare state, like a lot of Leninists thought they would be. Um, these social democrats were actually emboldened. And uh, young workers and, and, and students and others um, were, were really fighting to question the perimeters of the, 
the, the system. So in Sweden, part of this grand compromise in which the employer federation, which is a highly centralized body and kind of the parallel body to the LO, the trade union uh, association, um, ended up breaking the compact that said that, you know, you'll have to submit to this new regime of accumulation, but we won't bother you, uh, your right to manage on the shop floor, um, young radical workers started breaking that compact and started pushing for industrial democracy in 68 onward. And in order to solve both a practical economic crisis that was growing and also for ideological reasons, there was the attempt to create these wage earner funds um, that would slowly use um, workers earning power, what they were earning at their firms, and would give them a percentage of their firm every year until some point in the future, maybe 15, 20 years, um, they would become majority owners through these wage earner funds controlled by by the working class itself of their, their firms. So it was an attempt to enact the transition from social democracy to, to socialism, which was, of course, Thwarted. I think the largest strikes in Swedish history, um, largest mass demonstrations, uh, wasn't against the Iraq War or anything else. I think it was in the early 1980s, and it was against the the Meidner plan. Um, so for various reasons, they lost the middle class. They lost some of the white collar um, trade unions uh, behind this too. There was a big propaganda offensive against it. Uh, that was a step too far. But there was a similar radicalization across social democracy. The um, young uh, the youth wing of the German Social Democratic Party in the 1970s, which by then had become a very conservative party, um, swung way to the far, far left. Uh, there was obviously May 68, but even after that, the common program of the French socialists and the French communists, which took power in the, the early 1980s, was quite radical. The Greek left took power around then. Uh, the fight for democratic uh, rights in places like South Korea and Spain and Portugal all had wings that were fighting for for that to be be also part of a socialist transformation too. So you have this period of intense radicalization. And what the third way social democrats did, I think this is crucial for people to remember, sometimes when we think about social, third way social democrats, we think about Gordon Brown, we think about Tony Blair, and we're like, these are odious, disgusting uh, people. They're personally you know, weak or whatever, whatever else. And I think in the case of Tony Blair, it's basically right. Um, Gordon Brown, I have a small soft spot for because he uh, was once at least a, a good trade unionist and he has a Scottish accent. Um, but, you know, Tony Blair, uh, horrendous guy. Um, not a fan of the show. Um, but um, I really do think that that it can't be that in every single social democratic party across the world, there was just a generation of weak, terrible leaders who weren't committed to social democracy. And that's how we got, got neoliberalism. And in fact, the gambit of a lot of these parties, the right wing of these parties was, we are going to allow capital to do what it has to do to restore profitability, uh, because we are reliant as people who run a capitalist state on profitable firms, so we have something to tax. But while weakening unions and weakening some regulations and, and rolling back some of the welfare state to allow this new regime of accumulation, we're going to retain part of our welfare state by taxing them, uh, then by, um, you know, having this, this, uh, our core welfare state, our national health service in the case of the UK, and our um, core other other parts of our welfare state be be protected. That was the gambit of third way social democracy. So I guess that would be something like 
um, kicking the field goal. But really, I really, I guess it was more like punting for field position, maybe. But it ended up backfiring because they undermined their own social base. And now workers don't see a difference between them and the right wingers. And they don't like them on cultural grounds and other things. And they won't vote for them. So they ended up undermining their own social base. So it was like a little bit like too clever by half kind of. So, Bhaskar, in the spirit of Nick's fandom, this, I think, is going to be our last question for you. And it's a little bit uh, broad slash open-ended, and you've touched on a little bit of it already. Um, But I I want to know what you think a successful or, um, yeah, a successful transition from social democracy to socialism could look like. And then maybe a follow-up question. Kale reminded us uh, that the late, great Leo Panitch Uh, said, you know, at one point that in the 21st century, it might be possible or even necessary to just skip over social democracy uh, and move towards something approaching socialism. Uh, What do you make of that? So on on Leo's question, I would say that I think it's necessary. And I had a great long interview with with Leo from January of, of 2020. We got to some of these questions. I think it's necessary for us to immediately bring up questions of ownership and democracy right away. Uh, So I think under social democracy, we need to be pushing for worker co-ops. And I know participatory budgeting is kind of like a liberal ridiculous thing, but the concept of having more active public involvement assemblies about the economy and about how money um, is spent and, and, and what the, what the public sector does with its money and all sorts of other, other, questions I think is really important. So I think we need to incorporate this this plank and we need to foster this kind of activity in civil society. And we need to f- use this as a measure to fight against the bureaucratization of our of our parties. You know, ultimately, a lot of these social democratic parties became incredibly parliamentary, parliamentarian and incredibly electoralist, and they end up undermining their own social base and demobilizing their rank and file. So their most talented members of the rank and file just were trying to get government jobs, not necessarily for bad or opportunistic reasons, but just because that was their avenue to, to politics. And workers were basically just told, yeah, thank you for building this movement and this party. Just come out and vote every couple of years uh, for us. That's your your role. So you lost some of that richness and that depth and that rootedness in civil society. Um, so it used to be if you went to a working class area anywhere really anywhere across the advanced capitalist world, you knew that that area was an area generally voting for either a center left or a far left uh, party. Um, if you were in the streets of Bologna, you would be like, okay, these are this is the working class. This is a working class area. These are the major industries that employ these people. And these people are either voting for the Italian Socialist Party, the Italian Communist Party. Maybe some of them are, are Christian Democrats, but that's a minority. And for the, those of us on the radical left, it would be easy for us to say, OK, well, we are revolutionary socialists. We just need to convince these people who are committed programmatically to a slow, cautious road to socialism to take the leap and join us in a, in a radical rupture towards socialism. It was very easy. I think our task is a bit, a bit more elementary. We need to reconstruct that working class uh, uh, culture and sense of being and connection to to politics so we we need to to have this rootedness uh and our project is a project of class reformation now what you the way i think you go about this process of reformation is organizing its activism and i think it's broad base 
uh, demands around our most popular issues, like a job guarantee, like Medicare for all, like a host of other other things. So I think you need to lead with the social democratic demands. Now, once the party takes power, um, I definitely hope we can pursue a more radical road than the road of just um, 50 years of of somewhat halting advance. Um, and I hope that we can 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 look for for um, ruptures. But um, but yeah, I don't think the social democratic demands part uh, can be can be skipped. And I think uh, actually talking to people and talking about what they what they want and and how they think politics can can improve their lives is is really, really uh, important for for us. And and that's why I'm both a socialist who spends a lot of time thinking about Tanzanian farm collectivization and and uh, Soviet democracy in the early Soviet Union and whatever else. Uh, but but I also think about Medicare you? for all. You know, I, I think <laughs> I think Medicare for all is our is our, our is our route to uh, Soviet democracy. Though I'm sure this will be clipped and used one day by you know someone yeah. on the right. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know what's going on with Tanzanian farm collectives. Uh, it didn't work out well, but we'll get the next time. Okay. We'll get the next okay. time. Okay, okay. Next time. Next no time. mass right. famine. Cool. No mass famine, though. It, 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 there's been worst examples of, of, of socialist collectivization, but we'll leave that okay. for the uh, after hours. Maybe we, we have a Patreon, right? So I, I don't know. stay tuned for that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. So well, you thank you, Bhaskar. Um, once again, Bhaskar Sankara, editor and publisher of Jacobin and Catalyst. And I forgot to mention this earlier, author of The Socialist Manifesto. Um, Bhaskar, do you have any forthcoming projects that you want to shout out or is it all? So I'm I'm working on a couple books now. I'm uh, almost done one, A History of the Grenadian Revolution, but still in negotiations, figuring out the contract. So please buy my book. You know, sales have dipped a little bit for the Socialist Manifesto, but it'll really increase my bargaining power <laughs> for my, my future projects, which is kind of like career disasters. Like writing a book about the Grenadian Revolution is not going to be good for my Pocket my prospects book. as a writer. Uh, it's going to be a good book, but it'll be like common. There's a huge like, market out there for mm. it. You, you know Common's like electric al- um, um, album where he's like, He's like rapping over like weird rock music and it's kind of like an electronic album with like rock music. Anyway, that's your Grenadian book. It's going to be there. That's my yeah. Grenadian book. Um, Fair enough. So buy, buy the socialist manifesto, subscribe to Jacobin, you know, press like, subscribe, all that. And uh, yeah, see you all Thanks, later. Thanks, Oscar. S- see you on the tube later. soon. You know, Supreme I. Supreme leader, Oscar Sunkara. <laughs> Indeed. I don't know that I would have initially thought that a talk about social democracy would be this fun, uh, but it's always yeah. great to have Bhaskar on. Uh, loved, loved hearing from him um, and good points all around, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, his his command of, of different periods of history and different, like all over the, like, you know, oh yeah, th- this party and whatever the hell and this country had this party and they were doing this kind of thing. It's like, it's always very helpful. Um, I always find Bosker very helpful in tying tying the different eras of history together because uh, I think most people think of them as like kind of static, you know, like, mm-hmm. like then in the 40s there was World War II and that was that. Was that. <laughs> right, and right. The, you know, and in the 60s there was civil rights and then that was that was its own thing. And then, yeah. you know, um, but he, he really does tie the sort of um the, the lines between between the areas and sees 
what we do and, um, you know, the, the, the current state of our politics in a sort of coherent whole, um, like an ongoing struggle, an ongoing process. And I think that I always find that helpful. I'm realizing now, I, I sort of wish I had asked him a question about actually existing social democracy uh, in the Nordic states, which is kind of the gold standard today, right? Um, but perhaps that's actually a question for Matt Brunig, who has been a guest on the Jackman Show and Weekends, right, in the past? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, oh. not, no, not, yes, no. I don't no. know if I interviewed him for no. no. Here's no. our, no, no, no. Here's our I've interviewed him in the past. So I just confirm. don't remember which of the various shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. we're all one big happy family. Yeah. Even though you're a bunch yeah. of reformist sock dems. Right. You- yeah. Kale. <laughs> Kale has only popped onto screen to uh, condemn social democracy. I'm just That's kidding. right. Yeah, actually, uh, yeah, you're all complacent. Uh, it's actually a ruse. Uh, you know, this, you're actually undermining the cause for communism. And, and isn't it like a thing? It's like it's suck Dems. They killed Rosa. Like that's the whole thing that they accuse you of these yeah. days. Do you know what you I'm talking personally, about? Personally, yeah. yeah, yes, your family. We can. We've traced it back. My mom's name is Rosa too. Different Rosa. Mm. But yeah. Uh, yeah, the connections. <laughs> yeah. Rosa Rosa was done dirty. She didn't deserve that at all. Even though, as Bosker said, I think some of her analysis is maybe undermined by the actual history of social democracy. But but she was like mad respect to the revolutionaries. Okay, of course, like of you, even though some of their theory is a little whack. But <laughs> we we ride for Rosa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Kale, any last thoughts on social democracy? He, I mean, he peaced out. He's back. Any last thoughts on social democracy before we call it a night? Uh, yeah, I mean, big fan. Um, would, would like it. <laughs> Huge fan. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, nice. I'm I'm a socialist. I'll, I'll I'm a Marxist. I you know I have a specific critique of capitalism, and I think socialism. Whatever I think there's different conceptions of what that is, but I, I do think um, there are certain key aspects to what socialism will be that do kind of deal with the major problems of capitalism. And so I do think that, um, you know, there's certain structural mechanisms within capitalism that continue to reproduce the really bad outcomes and that mm-hmm. socialism as kind of our, in the principles that guide our process of trying to build towards socialism, um, they are supposed to ameliorate those. But uh, I think it's, you know, I think we should, we should be humble and, and be a little, you know, unsure of the future. We shouldn't be so, you know, rock rib deterministic and say, listen, if we get social democracy, that would be a much better world. And if we're able to go beyond it, if we are able to succeed where our predecessors uh, were not able to in the past, uh, of course, I mean, that would be like even better because that would be the the better outcome for the vast majority of humanity. Um, yeah, but, uh, we, we should fight like hell, like Bosco was saying for things like Medicare for all and mm-hmm. for like basic workplace democracy demands that, um, greater to the extent that it's possible to expand democracy into the workplace, into the economy and to all the other aspects of society, politics and culture that it's lacking currently. I mean, we, we do want that. And so we should be fighting for those, uh, demands and reforms and, um, and we, start with the labor movement, you know, or at least we kind of prioritize the labor movement because we know that's what works. And unless Mm -hmm. we get another better answer, I don't know, we're just going to have to keep coming back to that. So 
Listen, since you bring up Marxism, I have one last thought, which actually goes back to our opening segment on conspiracy theories. Mm. And uh, this this is it. So uh, a few years ago, I reviewed a couple of books on conspiracy theories for the New Republic. And one of the authors was like, there are way few conspiracy theories on the left than on the right, because the left has the ultimate conspiracy theory, Marxism. And the thing is, like, he obviously meant it as a dig, but, <laughs> right. but he, in a way, I mean, you know, going back to you know, right. something, he's right. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I don't know, like, we do believe that there is, it, be a she. it was a he, it was a he. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we do believe, you know, in, I mean, if you want to put it on, like, very general terms, that there is a small cohort let's call it the ownership class uh that exploits the vast majority of people yeah i well and also not just that but like it is um the the role of ideology if, if you have a coherent ideology is that it helps you process these uh you know random seemingly random events that happen in the news all the time especially in the days these days where it's like a torrent of news to your face every single day um what ideology helps you is to sort it into a narrative and in, 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 in a coherent kind of, you can plot the points and be like, oh, this is why this is happening, you know? And in a way, it replaces the role of conspiracy, which is, mm-hmm. um, is to, is to uh, ascribe a narrative to these seemingly random events. Um, we just have the correct narrative and the other people, they just, it's not as correct, you know? Well, we know, and we know that because, like, we're scientific socialists. That, like, it's like we actually like Are this we? is. I, I, I speak for yourself, bro. I don't know what the fuck that right. means. Ned hates okay, science. Fair. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Seriously. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I mean, just that, like, I, I think, I think we treat. I mean, obviously, you know. Um, you know. Uh, people who are physicists aren't they, they're not called newtonians uh they're not called eisensteinians we're called marxists uh and i think it's i think it's because to a certain extent uh an analysis of capitalism it's it's difficult to get it fully to the level of science in the way that like biology or physics can be and it's largely in part because we're dealing with actual society where there actually are class divisions. Like the fact that Marxism can actually explain uh, how society is divided. Uh, it can also then explain why there's going to be limitations for like why people will or won't agree to yeah. it or, or like why it won't get legitimacy within um, like social scientists broadly. Like everything that's followed Marx's work, all the like everything in sociology has basically been there to try to disprove Marx and they've all failed. But <laughs> but like it's, a, you know, you prove that they failed. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But the, just the thing on the conspiracy is just that like, yeah, there there is like there are a very small handful. Uh, there's like less than a thousand companies that control all of our lives yeah. across the entirety of the globe and humanity. Uh, but it's not a conspiracy because they're actually all trying to kill each other. Like there's a, right. there's a structural feature of the economic system that forces them into competition constantly. And so it's probably, it's more rare that they're going to be united and trying to like, you know, collaborate together to, you know, to get what they want. And it's more often the case, especially when you don't have a united working class, when you don't have, uh, the state working on behalf of working people um, that capitalists are just going to all be knives out trying to, you know, destroy each other because they care above everything else. They care about making a profit. So 
and, and so that's where it's like you could have different people put in the same in the same companies. They're going to still have to do the same thing. They're going to fight mm-hmm. to the death because the system, the fact that they're in a market, they have to compete, um, and they own all the most important stuff in society. Uh, means that they're going to try to kill each other, and then it ends up trying. It ends up killing all of us. So yeah. that's why Epstein was killed. Not That's because of the other why stuff. Epstein was killed. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I get it. All right. Well, on the uh, subject of competition, everybody go watch some basketball now, I guess. That's and right. uh, we'll the see you things week. in life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night, guys. Bye. Good night. <laughs>